we're coming to the end of our, our series that we've called Man of Sorrows, uh, through, during which we have been thinking about how Jesus suffered at the hands of all kinds of people and, and that those he thought were friends abandoned him. Those he thought ought to defend his cause of righteousness, they, they turned on him and they rejected him and he was tried unjustly and he was mocked and he was killed. And by the time he was hanging on the cross, Jesus was absolutely alone, completely and entirely and utterly alone. He was abandoned by everyone, even for that moment on the cross as we looked at Good Friday, even by his own father. Now, the question is, why were all these people bailing on Jesus? And you could say, well, they were bailing on Jesus because, well, he, he, uh, they wanted to save their own skin. You know, the, the heat was being turned up and the, the authorities were coming after Jesus and, and the people had turned against Jesus and therefore, in order to protect themselves, uh, they uh, abandoned Jesus and they denied him so that they could avoid being arrested with him and being tried, maybe even being crucified with him, etc. And you could say that and that would be partly true. But if Jesus was believed... Because Jesus himself said, look, I am going to die and then I'm going to be raised again in three days. If Jesus was believed by all these people, if they said, yeah, this is what's going to happen to him, why would they abandon him? I mean, they know that this is the, the end game, that he is going to come back from the dead. He's going to rise from the grave. And therefore, whose team do you want to be on? When we get to the end of the game, whose team do you want to be on? You want to be on the winning team. You want to be on the victor's team, obviously. And, and they abandoned him nevertheless. And so we can't say that it was simply about, you know, protecting themselves, making sure that they don't get caught up in, in his trial and in his death. No, you know why Jesus was abandoned by everybody except by his father? He was abandoned by his father on the cross. But the reason for their abandonment, it was this. Nobody believed him. Nobody believed him. They didn't believe who he said he was. They didn't believe that he was a Messiah. They didn't believe that he was a king. They didn't believe that he was a son of God. They believed that he was an absolutely great man. Maybe the best man ever to live. Now, uh, you know, they live pre-internet age, so they didn't have as much access to the stories of great people that we did. So their pool of candidates of greatest ever maybe was smaller than ours is. But they thought he was perhaps a great man. But in the end, he did what all men do. He died. And so their dreams, their hopes, their ambitions, they died with him. And they didn't believe that his death was not the end of the story. They didn't believe that there was more to come. But you see... Matthew is setting us up, okay? He's been constructing his narrative in this way in order to set us up for this moment. Peter, uh, you know, who most famously denies Jesus three times and abandons Jesus, you know, he reflects on all of this later on. And in his letter, he says this, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Now listen to this. Instead... He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
He entrusted himself to God. He doesn't hit back. He entrusts himself to God. And this morning, in this passage that we read, we see that God vindicates Jesus for that. For entrusting himself to the Father, God vindicates him. Jesus, or Matthew, shows us that, that Jesus was telling the truth, that everything he said about himself was absolutely true, that all that happened it happened as he predicted it, so he must be who he says he is. And you know, he also shows us that even though Jesus is now raised and he is the resurrected Jesus, he, has, he is never to die again and he's been vindicated, he is still so gracious towards those people that he loves that, he, that he, he, he speaks to them in such a way as to strengthen them and to comfort them and to encourage them. Rather than bring down the hammer and say to all those pretenders who said, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, and then when the heat was turned up and they deep down had this unbelief and refused to believe and they abandoned him, he doesn't come to them and and lay into them. No. He graciously receives them again and provides for them the very thing that they needed to understand what on earth has happened over these last 24 hours. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two scenes. We're going to look at the scene of Uh, the angels appearing to these women, and we're going to look at the scene of Jesus appearing to these women, and we're going to see how God vindicated Jesus in his resurrection and how he treats his people as a result. So first of all, his appearance with the angels. It says in verse 1, or sorry, the angels' appearance to the women. It says in verse 1, after the Sabbath at dawn... On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went up to look at the tomb. It says at dawn, and that's fitting, okay? Because this moment that these girls are, these women are going to experience, this moment is is not just the dawn of a new day. This is a, a dawn of a new age, and Matthew is setting us up to see that this is a, a new reality that, that the world is experiencing. He says that there's this massive earthquake that happens, He says, the earth, what does he say? He says, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, what you see is you see earthquakes representing the presence of God. It signals that God is here. So most famously, of course, when God rescues his people out of Egypt with with, with just unbelievable power and force, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. They're all gathered there, and then all of a sudden we hear that there is like an, an earthquake. The whole earth heaves and shakes, and, Jesus, and, and God comes down to comfort and to judge. And at the, the earthquake, or sorry, at the cross, we saw an earthquake where when Jesus was dying and he cried out in a loud voice, it said the earth shook because God's judgment on our sin was coming down on Jesus in that moment. But, but this is different because this earthquake is happening not when God comes down in judgment, but when the angel comes down in announcement of a new day and of a dawning of a new day. He's come to announce that God has indeed defeated sin, and he has defeated death, he has defeated hell. The grave cannot hold Jesus. You know, he rolls this this tomb away from the the door. He doesn't roll that, 
He didn't roll a tomb away. The tomb stayed there. He rolled this, this rock, this massive boulder, away from the opening of the tomb. Why? It wasn't so Jesus could get out. It wasn't like Jesus was, was inside the tomb, and he's, you know, he gets breath back, and he gets up, and he walks to the entrance, and he starts banging on the door, and he says, let me out of here. That's not why. Jesus could get out just fine. The door was open so that women could get in, so that people could see that the tomb was empty. One scholar put it this way. He said, look, when, when our Savior died his bitter death, the whole creation heaved with sorrow. But when he rose, the whole creation, this other earthquake, was bursting with joy. And it must have been quite a scene. I mean, I don't, you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen an angel. Probably never seen an, I've never seen an angel. But when they're described in the Bible, you know, they're described as quite spectacular beings. Here's an angel whose clothing is as white as snow, but he is described. Matthew can't even come up with a word to properly describe what this angel looks like. So he says he looks like lightning. Like he is just blazing bright. And he, he is so terrifying that, that these soldiers are pe- literally paralyzed with fear. I don't know if you've ever been so scared that you cannot move, but that's precisely what happened to these soldiers. It says that they laid down as dead because they were so terrified they could not move. I've only ever seen that in animals. Have you ever, have you ever seen, okay, this is a bit of an aside, but I, I find it interesting. You ever seen a mouse that got caught by a cat? Cats are cruel, eh? Like they play with their prey sometimes. And so they, they corner a mouse and a mouse will just sit there and shake because it knows it's got nowhere to go. They're frozen stiff. I know they're shaking, but you get what I mean when I say they're frozen stiff. They can't run. Okay, maybe I should have forgotten of that. Instead of, I shouldn't always act on every instinct I have. It's true. Anyway, So they open the tomb to allow the women in. Why? To vindicate God's raising of Jesus from the dead. And they do this with four things in their announcement. First of all, they say, notice, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. They're announcing the personal resurrection of Jesus Christ, the same Jesus who was killed. It says who was crucified. They're saying that this this resurrection was a physical resurrection, that Jesus' resurrection is not the resurrection of a phantom or of a ghost or, or some kind of ideal. It was not a spiritual resurrection. It was an absolute physical resurrection. People today, they like to think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in kind of uh, metaphorical terms. They say, you know, well, Jesus, you know, he died on the cross, etc. And this whole story about his resurrection, you know what it's really about? It's really about teaching us that we too can be resurrected to some kind of new life, to some sort of higher plane of consciousness kind of thing. We can, we can experience the presence of the cosmic Christ because Jesus did that when he rose spiritually from the dead. This point, the point of the story is to inspire us to a higher plane of existence like Jesus was able to achieve. And so this resurrection is really just a metaphor, but I'm sorry if you think that Matthew is making the point that Jesus physically died and physically rose from the dead. He 
he makes sure they know the one who was crucified is now raised from the dead. And he goes on and explains to them that it is a predicted resurrection. In verse 6, it says, He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Now, that is no small thing. He is risen just as he said. Jesus said his resurrection would happen. All through his ministry he did. He was always dropping hints and explaining to his disciples, look, I'm going to die and then I've got to rise again. Now think about this. To predict your own death and even the manner of your own death is not necessarily all that hard to do. Like even Jesus' death, he died, you know, as a criminal kind of thing on a cross, etc., In his day and age, it wasn't hard to set things up in such a way that you could guarantee that you will die this way. All he had to do was actually do what he was charged with having done, which was cause an insurrection, right? All he had to do was was be charged with sedition against the Roman authorities, and then they would have every good reason to actually put him to death. And Jesus predicted that that was going to happen. In Luke 24, verse 7, he says, The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of uh, sinners to be crucified. So he didn't just predict that I'm going to die. He predicted the way he was going to die. But you can make sure that that part happens. Luke 24 records that Jesus doesn't just say, I'm going to die. He goes on to say, and on the third day be raised again. That's a lot harder to pull off. Because if you're dead, and Jesus was dead dead, okay? Jesus wasn't swooning. Jesus wasn't in a coma. Okay? Jesus was actually dead. When you're dead dead, that means that you don't have brain waves going on. You don't have heart pumping. You don't have control of your fit. You've lost your, you know, you don't have consciousness. You can't You have no ability to to actually have impact on your physicality because you're now no different than an inanimate object. And yet Jesus predicted that he was going to be raised from the dead. Now, somebody might say, well, okay, that doesn't really prove anything because Jesus' followers, you know, they could have they could have concocted some kind of ruse, some kind of trick to fool people into thinking that Jesus was dead and, or Jesus had risen. And that's, that's kind of a good idea. But wait a minute. If you go down to verse 13, it says here, you are to say, so this is when the, I'll start at verse 12 actually, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. Now that statement is actually very, very strong evidence for an empty tomb. It is. It may not look like it at first, but but think this through with me for a minute. If you want to fabricate a story to show that Jesus rose from the dead and convince people that, yes, Jesus rose from the dead... The last thing you want to do is actually, in your telling of that story, offer a very plausible counter theory to what you're you're trying to convince people of. Like this idea that the guards fell asleep, that 
a group of people sneakily came along and they somehow were able to roll that stone away and were able to sneak the body out under their noses, etc. Like, that's a very plausible story. If I want to fool you into believing a made-up story, the last thing I want to do is try to bolster my argument by giving you a really good reason not to believe it. Why on earth would Matthew include this? Well, because the story had been circulating, quite obviously. It had been out there. People were, were the buzz was, was about this. And so what this proves, actually, is that the tomb was empty. It doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but it does prove that the tomb was empty. There had to be a reason for this story about the disciples coming and sneaking off with Jesus' body under the dark cover of night. There had to be a reason for that story to be around, and it was. And the church simply could not grow if this story that Jesus had risen from the dead, that the tomb was empty, the church simply could not grow without that story. All they had to do to put the whole thing to bed, to put an end to this crazy Jesus is God and we must worship him and follow him. He is the fulfillment of the law. That's what the chief priests and the elders were so concerned about, that Jesus was basically going to upend their whole religious system. The easiest way to put an end to all of that was simply to produce a body. Or to say, oops, you know, we went to the wrong tomb. Here he is, <laughs> right? We, now we're at the right tomb, and oh, okay, he's laying nicely and peacefully right there. But they never did that. The angels are announcing, friends, a proven resurrection. You know, the angels, they say to the women, come and see. Come and see. We open the door for you to go in and have a look. They're saying this is not a myth. This is a historically verifiable event. And the first witnesses of this historically verifiable event were these two women, the two Marys. And you got to understand, in that culture, sadly, I'm not saying it's right, but in that culture, women's testimonies were not admissible in court. Women couldn't be trusted. And here Matthew is saying that it's the testimony of two women that first declares that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. Why would Matthew include, include that? And I, I mean this with all due respect, but he, he includes it because he had to. He had to admit that this is how it happened. You know, he's, he's playing the role of, you know, the guys in Dragnet. You remember that show? Dragnet? It's even before my time, but I watched a lot of TV as a kid, so I watched like all kinds of old shows. Just the facts, man. Ma'am, just the facts. He's reporting the facts. And afterward, the facts continue in such a way that, that makes it very hard to deny that this tomb was empty and that this Jesus had raised. I mean, here's these disciples. They get called. They go and look. They meet Jesus on the mountaintop. And they spend the rest of their lives telling this story that Jesus has risen from the dead. And every single one of them died for it. Most of them were martyred rather brutally, frankly, for this belief. John was died in exile, so maybe his death was a little less painful, but there are stories that he actually died violently as well. And you know, the angel... T Look, before I get there, I've talked to uh, Mike, Mike Tickler and I, we love to talk about this one together. 
People die for falsehoods all the time. That's not the amazing thing. People die for stuff that, that isn't true all the time. But what they don't do is die for stuff they know isn't true. People don't live a lie, not believe the lie, propound the lie, find themselves in danger of being killed for believing that lie, and then say, I'm going to believe that lie right to the end. Why? Because I want my legacy to be that I had integrity all my life? You're a liar! There's no integrity in being a liar. There's no cash value. There's no payoff to believing that something is a lie and propounding it right until your violent death. Now, again, that doesn't prove that Jesus is a lie, that Jesus rose. What it proves is, is that the disciples absolutely believed that Jesus rose. And one more thing. The angels tell the women, go tell what are he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Go tell the disciples. This is verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now that's, that's code. The disciples would have known what Jesus was talking about because they were with Jesus in the upper room. And in chapter 26, verse 32, Jesus says to them, after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And the apostle Paul, it's believed by scholars, the apostle Paul was reflecting on this event, the disciples going to Galilee to meet with Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says that at one time, in one moment, Jesus appeared to some 500 people at the same time. And Paul records that in Corinthians because he's basically saying, look, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures as was predicted. And if you don't believe me, there were 500 people who saw him at the same time. You can go and, and, and corroborate the story if you want. There's, I don't know how many people, 150 people in this room today or whatever. Like, imagine I did something weird or notable or controversial or something and three people from this service go and start sharing on facebook and on their instagram feeds you'll never believe what paul vandenbrink did it was wild and crazy three people from this service do that it would be very easy for the community for dundas or whomever to kind of ignore that and say well those are three people who are kind of off their rockers right they're the only three people who say anything but what if all of you all of you went out there and put on your Instagram feed and on your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed or whatever, or even talked to someone face-to-face <gasps> and, and said, you don't ever believe what this guy did. All of you did. That would be a lot harder to simply dismiss, wouldn't it? God, in, in the angels visiting Mary, God is vindicating Jesus it's true. He rose from the dead. He made good on his promise. He came to do what he meant to do. And if you're here and you don't quite understand what we're talking about when we say resurrection, what we're saying is, is that in the middle of history, we are still in the middle of history. We, history has a beginning. It has a middle. It has an end. We are currently in the middle of history. And Jesus' time of ministry was also the middle of history. And in that middle of history, this man, Jesus, he actually died. And he was dead for several days at 
at a time. But then when he rose again, he rose never to die again. It's not like Lazarus when he came up from the grave. Lazarus died again. It's not like the widow's son who was, who was uh, raised when Jesus touched him. That man died again. Jesus never, ever died again. And if you are a skeptic here this morning, you say, that's such a crazy story. Will you please at least consider that never, ever, ever before in the history of the world or after in the history of the world has any idea, whether a religious idea or a political idea or any other kind of idea, has it taken root in such a short period of time, without the aid of physical force. There are other ideas that have spread, but they have taken centuries upon centuries to spread. There's no idea, there's no belief system that spread with, with such rapidity, that is a word by the way, with such rapidity throughout the world without the help of military uh, might. Just arguments. Just witnesses telling Another witness telling another witness telling another witness. And it didn't take long before the people who were telling the story didn't witness Jesus alive themselves. They, they were just connected to the story and they believed the story. And that story had power in their lives. The argument changed their lives and so they continued the story. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, that all happened such a long time ago. Don't let historical distance be the reason that you ignore the story. Because you see, if it's actually true that Jesus rose from the dead, there is no historical distance. Jesus is alive right now. He is reigning in heaven right now. He is here by his spirit right now. And he may be knocking on the door of your heart right now, calling you to faith, calling you to believe. And you think, well, if I would just see him, if I could just open my eyes one day and see Jesus in front of me with the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet, I could see this resurrection of Jesus. I would believe him. Did you not read with me the last part of the passage? Jesus meets with his disciples on the mountaintop and it says they fell down and worshipped him, but some doubted. It's not seeing with your own eyes that's going to click and going to change you from skeptic to a believer. Let me get back to the sermon and then I can tell you what is. It's the story, embracing the story and seeing it change your heart. Look, look at these women. These women were despondent, okay? Mary and Mary, they were despondent. All their hopes and dreams had been dashed in the death of Jesus. They had, they had basically put their lot in with him and they had found him tried and they had found him tested and apparently they had found him wanting. Their dreams were dashed. They're probably thinking to themselves, what, how do we go on? What do we, what do, we do now? What's the point? But, but the angel confronted them with evidence and they weighed that evidence, you see? 
They weighed that evidence. The angel said, come and see. And they did come and see. And what they found was that it had to be true. And so it says in verse 8, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, because they didn't quite understand. They're still freaking out, but filled with joy. Now, in that moment, you have one of the most interesting things, okay? They've not met Jesus yet, but they've heard the story. And they're afraid and filled with joy. And some of you right now, I hope and pray that that's where you are. You're afraid and filled with joy. What does that mean? It means that these women were in that in-between. Oh, this story is so good. This story is so good. I hope it's true. But I'm afraid. What if it's not? Because it'll kill me if it's not. I'll be devastated if it's not, but I want it to be true. Oh man, I want it to be true. And so they had that hopeful joy that comes from from hearing a story that is so outrageously beautiful and hopeful that you say, I want it to be true. I'm pleading that it's true. Because if it's true, I cannot imagine how my life can stay the same. If it's true, everything is different. Everything is changed. All my hopes and fears are filled, are, are, are fulfilled in this, tr- tr- in this story being true. And when it was confirmed to them, in verse 9 it says, Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. What did they do? They came to him, clapped his, cl- clapped, clasped his feet, and worshipped them. <laughs> they fell down and they grabbed him by the feet and, and they basically said, Jesus, it's true. It's true. We love you. We rejoice in you. We worship you because it's true. If you are here and you're not a believer, and, and you, but you know believers, you know Christians who believe that Jesus rose from the dead, why do you think they believe it? Do you think that they're just simple suckers? Do you think that they're just uninformed and uneducated? We all live in a modern world. We all take biology 101 or whatever it is in grade 10. We all know that dead things don't come back to life. We all know. It's not like us believers are ignorant of the scientific method. And it wasn't like these people were ignorant of the scientific method. They understood that dead things don't come back to life. But this Jesus did. Come on. And like those women, every believer has had an encounter now with this risen Jesus. That's why they believe. And so all I'm asking you to do if you're a skeptic is explore whether something that sounds too good to be true could actually be. And finally, Christian friends, here's the challenge for us. I ask you, where is your joy in the midst of your troubles and hardships and sorrows, in the midst of a world that's facing a global pandemic and facing a war in Ukraine and economic uh, 
uh, uncertainty and uh, changes. If you're a Christian anyway, you're looking at sort of changes in the perspective and in the worldview of the secular world around you that, that seems like things are, are deviating even further and further and further from what you believe all the time. And you feel like, whoa, man, you know, I'm kind of depressed and I, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious about the future and I'm worried about my finances and I'm scared about how to raise my kids in a world that is getting just so vastly different from my own value system. And you think to yourself, my, oh my, oh my, oh my, everything looks so lousy and crappy in front of me. It's Resurrection Sunday. Where's your joy? One scholar put it this way, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight, look what has come to the world. They saw not merely ruin, but the resources for the reconstruction of that ruin. They saw not merely the sin that did abound, but that grace did much more abound. On that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve, and fatalism to faith and confidence that at the last, sin had met its match. That something new had come into the world. That not only here and there, but on a wide scale, humankind could attain to that hitherto impossible thing. Goodness. I'll close with a little story from John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom, he's uh, a church father who lived during the 4th century. And he was brought before the empress Eudoxia. Eudoxia, what a cool name. Anyhow, he was brought before her, and she threatened him with banishment if he insisted on his Christian independence as a preacher. She wanted him to, to preach a version of the Christian faith that, that supported the emperor and supported the, the Roman cause, and he refused to do that. He, he, he would only preach the lordship of Jesus Christ, and so she threatened him with banishment. And he said to her, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Well, but I will kill you, said the empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, I will take away your treasures. You can't, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there also. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot. I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Friends, that's resurrection hope. We defy the world, we defy the devil, we defy even our own sinful natures, and we say, ultimately, there is nothing you can do to harm me. Because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we cannot do justice to this message. My feeble words are not enough.
to grasp the grandeur and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May each of us spend the rest of our lives personally, corporately, communally, exploring the implications that Jesus rose and lives today. And may it change us. May it pierce our gloom. May it be the the dawn of a new day in our own lives as we face whatever circumstances we see coming on the horizon. Do this, we ask, for your glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We are going to go to communion together. We're not going to do a Q&A today. It's Easter Sunday. And sometimes you just, rather than question the word from the preacher, you just got to wrestle with that word yourself. <laughs>